Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The weaponization of loneliness is very hardwired into us. We have that fear of being rejected if we give the wrong answer, you know, if we give the right answer or say what we believe. And then again, we also have this deep-seated kind of impulse to follow orders by authority figures, even if we know they hurt people. Friends of the Austin Institute, and welcome to another episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. This episode, I think, epitomizes for its content the reason why we even exist, and above all, the reason why we chose our name, What We Can't Not Talk About. And before I get into the context of the things that we're about to discuss discuss today, I wanted to start by asking you this question. Do you Listeners, keep your opinions to yourself because you're afraid that people will reject you if you say what you think. Or do you or did you ever sign on to a cause just because everyone around you acted like, well, that's the right thing. That's the only thing to do. So if the answer to one of these two questions to both is yes, then the author of The Weaponization of Loneliness and today's guest, Stella Morabito, has definitely something to tell you. Good morning, Stella, and welcome on our show. Well, good morning. Thank you so much, Mariana. I really, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you. I'm thrilled to have you also knowing, you know, you're you're being invited by Fox News uh, hosts. So I'm, I'm very glad that you accepted, you know, our, our invitation on our modest, small show, but that I know has a lot of impact on a lot of lives of the, the people that follow us. So thank you. Well, it's a great uh, show. Thank you. Thank you for your, for your time. So as I said, our title, what we cannot talk about, cannot but signify that we agree with at least some of the things that you write, things that you make very clear at the end of your book, speaking of the importance of, of free speech. And also dealing, as we do here at the Institute, with students and probably with the lonely, loneliest generations that uh, existed on this planet, we could not but uh, be attracted by your title, right? The weaponization of loneliness. And you speak of loneliness. So you speak of loneliness as, as a weapon in the, hands, in the hand of tyrants. Like the subtitle is like how tyrants stoke our fear of isolation to silence, divide and conquer. So of course, this is extremely attractive to us. And, and again, I, I, I largely agree with a lot of the things you say, and I really enjoyed reading your book. But before we get, you know, we dive deep into its content, I wanted to ask you, you know, for those who do not know you, if you might want to introduce yourself, and especially, you know, what makes you an expert on regimes and on totalitarianism? Well, thank you so much, Mariana. I've always had a strong interest in uh things that deal with psychological manipulation, uh, you know, how people can be persuaded to do things that in their better judgment they wouldn't do. And this is something that's been with me since childhood. But then later on, I studied Russian and Soviet history in my graduate work. I got my bachelor's in journalism and international relations, but then I studied for a master's in Russian and Soviet history, and especially reading about Stalin's reign of terror all of this interest in how isolation is used as a weapon 
really started to crystallize with me. And then with that degree, I ended up working at the Central Intelligence Agency uh, as an analyst. And much of that work had to do with media analysis and propaganda of the Soviet Union. This was back, you know, in the Cold War days. And uh, and that even, you know, even more greatly influenced my focus on all of these issues of dealing with propaganda, propaganda in our daily lives and how it affects us and how it affects our personal relationships. And so anyhow, after about a decade there, I ended up home raising my children and homeschooling them, but I never lost an interest in that. And I started tracking how all of those mechanisms were involved in um, life in America. I started tracking the abortion issue and, uh, you know, all the life issues, eugenics and, and of course, education and propaganda in all of our institutions and what I call woke creep, even in the military, even in churches. And I just became, you know, really interested in that. And then I started writing about a lot of these things, first in the Washington Examiner, and now I'm a senior contributor and have been a senior contributor to The Federalist. Your listeners may be familiar with the magazine, online magazine, The Federalist, since 2014. Anyway, a lot of my work there and a lot of my essays have to do with the social fallout of propaganda, of media, uh, you know, and manipulation, big media, big tech, and, you know, the cult mindset, mobs, and the mob mindset. So that's kind of a really long introduction, but that should get people familiar with my bio. Yeah. And um, honestly, I do think that the people that are listening to us already know who you are. I wanted, you know, I cared about, you know, your work, your knowledge about how the Soviet regime worked and your knowledge of history, because I want to talk about history and you do talk about history in your book. Yes. But so, you know, every scholar would ask, you know, what is your main thesis? You know, when mm-hmm. in writing this book, I would like to know, you know, what is your main thesis? If there was like something that people would know, like approaching your book and, you know, a corollary of that question is like, why did you feel the need to write it? You know, why why aren't your you know, federalist articles, like, or, you know, the, the, why aren't that the short articles enough? Like, what do we need a book and, and a description mm-hmm. of the whole thing? Oh my, thank you, Mariana. Yeah. I, I wrote this book because I felt I, I needed to put together some kind of a blueprint. It, it wasn't going to fit into uh, an, an essay or an article, you know, from start to finish of all of these observations, because I didn't see it out there. And that tied together, what ties all of these totalitarian regimes together? What ties all of those impulses together? You know, this has been the question that I've been trying to probe for so much of my life. And I came up with the thesis that, you know, I think we all know instinctively that as human beings, we are hardwired to connect with other people. Human beings are social animals. We cannot live in isolation. And therefore, The flip side of that need, that desire, is the absolute fear. I would call it a primal fear of being ostracized, of being cast out of society. That's enough if you've read about a lot of societies and communities that are isolated themselves. When a a person is cast out, they they very often tend to just die in isolation. 
So it's a very traumatic, very traumatic thing for a human being, very abnormal. And so that fear of intense loneliness, intense isolation is very easily exploited. It's, it's, it makes us so vulnerable to the tyrannical impulse in certain players out there that it's really what we need to get a, a handle on to try to build counter strategies because that fear can dictate so much of you know, what happens in a society. And you see it in like the World Economic Forum, which is meeting this week in Davos. They talk a lot about just censorship, you know, criminalizing speech under the guise of hate speech, but criminalizing conversation really is what, when you get right down to it, having us all live in some kind of a digital world, like the quote metaverse, instead of real life connections with other people where we're all kind of isolated in these fake you know, three-dimensional uh, scenarios, and and that's supposed to be a substitute for real life, and uh, and so and they want to control, you know, what you eat and where you can go and your mobility and all of that. And this is all of a piece. All of this stuff is isolating by itself. And so I'm sorry. So put it in a nutshell, my thesis: the fear of isolation is what causes us to self-censor and obey and comply with the orders of totalitarians. And that, of course, only digs us deeper into isolation. That's the great irony. And we have to we have to push back against that if we want freedom to survive. Yeah, what is fascinating about you saying you know, it pushes into further isolation is something I was telling and I was discussing with one of our undergraduates last night about this and how, you know, we were talking about, she said, well, but people have friends. And, you know, my answer is just like, yeah, but if you have friends to whom you don't tell what you really think, you are farther isolated. You're, you're still alone, right? Because you, right. oh. they don't know exactly who you are and what you really yes. think. And then the fear is, if only this person knew who I really mm-hmm. am and what I really think, I would be rejected. But even if we don't, and we create this relationship based on appearances of what we are, and and this leads to, you know, I've already talked about it, but we, we did a short reading group on the essay by Pieper on the abuse of language, abuse of power, where he says, you know, by lying, we destroy the possibility of our relationship. And lying is also, self-censorship is a way of lying, right? Because Exactly. Absolutely. No, if you, if you can't have, if you can't speak openly to other people, especially those that you come in contact with in daily life, whether it's. Yeah, I mean, really bad if it's your family uh, members or, uh, or or what you would call close friends. Uh, if you can't speak openly, you can't have relationships. You can't have, you can't develop a relationship. And that is what is behind censorship, what's behind political censorship. It cuts off the potential for strong human bonds to develop. And so that, that's why it is so insidious, you know, censorship in, in general. And another thing that I wanted to point out, there is something very beautiful, I think, and very charitable in pointing out this fear of isolation, because somehow you save 80% of the people from the accusation of being, you know, evil or like why, oh. you know, when we look at history, it's like, why did these regimes make, you know, why, why did people not react? Why did they? 
get along with it? You know, why did they obey? Why didn't they, they mm-hmm. you know, why didn't they stand up against evil? Mm-hmm. And I was, so I found that speaking of this fear, which of course we can't give into it, right? If we know that we have this fear, we need to react. Right. But somehow I found, I found it very charitable and therefore true, because usually to be charitable, but also to, to, be, to be truthful towards most people, right? And you also write, good people are usually not suspicious. Mm-hmm. That's another beautiful That's sentence that you had there, right? Like they, they tend to believe, good, good people tend to believe what they're told. Yes. And, and, and again, that is exploited. Most famously, perhaps in Saul Linsky's book, Rules for Radicals, where he, rule, I think it's 13, use the goodwill of others against them in order to push your agenda forward. And, and that's what's been happening. And, and yeah, it is a very natural fear and we're all susceptible to it. Some of us have better thresholds for speaking out than others. And that in part depends upon our ability to fall back on strong relationships. If we don't have, and there's so much brokenness So much brokenness in family, so much brokenness in religion, so much brokenness in community. And I'm talking about organic community, not, you know, the the kind of community that people left tend to, you know, talk about all the time, which is kind of a demographic. I'm just talking about people coming together in a sense of friendship and community and goodwill. And because of all of that brokenness out there, first of all, most people are affected by that. And so they're a whole lot more vulnerable to being exploited than those who might have family and strong friendships. They can let their hair down and and just say exactly what they feel and they can have, you know, they can feel good and, and, you know, after a hard day, you know, dealing with all that censorship and speaking out and maybe being demonized for speaking out, but they know they've got those friends. They know they've got those those loyal bonds that they can fall back on. And unfortunately, I don't think most people today have a strong enough sense of loyal bonds. They're at a great disadvantage. So the second thing I'd point out is turning this around is not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a long road back or it's hard road, if not a long road, there may not be that much time, but a hard road back. But we have to kind of help reignite bonds like that, reach out in community and, and of course, guard and protect the bonds that we already have, because there's so many things happening now that meddle in those bonds. For example, I was told that, uh, I don't know what state it was, there's probably more than one state where 12-year-olds can, uh, you know, get vaccinated without parental, you know, without any uh, permission. And, you know, pediatricians are already throwing parents out of the, uh, you know, out of, out of the office so that they could talk to the children privately. And, and so there's that interference now in those bonds in, in, in many different ways. I mean, not just parent-child, but, you know, there's uh, in California, I believe, I don't think it didn't go through, but there was a, uh, a bill in the legislature trying to break the seal of confession so that, you know, priests could, uh, you know, would have to be, you know, forced to testify. So, or, or the parishioner would be forced to testify. So, you know, all of these meddlings in relationships are, um, 
very insidious. They bode ill. So we have to guard and guide them and uh, reach out. Yeah. And as you say, it's going to take time and it requires formation, which, you know, you somehow, you know, it's, of course, it goes to the core of our mission and, you know, educating people to disloyal bonds. And one thing that I would like to point out is that disloyal bonds are, they what they mean to me, at least, is that you don't like the person because of you agree on certain things. You don't, you don't have this bond with the person because you have the same political views or you have the same faith or you, because that speaks again of an identity and of like liking the person because of something she thinks or said or did that might, it's insufficient, I would argue to overcome that fear of loneliness, right? Because in order to feel that we have bonds, as you said, it's like you need to come back one night and say maybe even something that you don't really think, like, but you're not constantly terrified that, you know, your husband mm-hmm. or whoever is there is going to say, well, then, you know, if you said this, then I cannot talk to you anymore. Like I thought you were, yeah. a diff- right? I thought you were a different person, but like now that I know this of you, it, somehow these loyal bonds are bonds that forgive us, that see us for you know, beyond what we think in the moment, what we say in the moment. And so I think it, they are the opposite of identity politics. Would you agree? Oh, yes, because they have to do with seeing one another as unique individuals, uh, seeing one another as human beings who have different perspectives and different, you know, thresholds, uh, different, you know, experiences that shape who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and that, you know, identity politics is all about just seeing you as a piece of a group. Of and I sort. talk about identity politics because you do it extensively in your book, right? So you have a, a, one of the second, the second section, I think the vivisection of America, where, you know, you, you describe like how identity politics, you know, and uh, the focus on women, the focus on race, the focus on the differences as vivisected the country, like so divided and and eliminated those bonds. One thing that you mentioned, you know, sometimes I think people like us that have been, you know, active in this world for a while, forget that some of our listeners are completely unaware of a lot of the names, we, you know, name and the books we mentioned. And you mentioned in your book, you mentioned multiple times this rules for radicals. So would you say something more about that book and who wrote it and... Oh, sure. It's been a little while since I've read the whole thing cover to cover, but Saul Linsky was a um, a very far left radical who published you know, during the 60s and even before. And uh, he published this book, I believe, in 1971. What people find very interesting about it, the one uh, snippet is that he dedicated it to Lucifer because he, quote, won his own kingdom, you know, like, uh, you know, that's something we're all supposed to emulate. But it was, it's really about what I would call the manipulate, you know, this sort of manipulation, the weaponization of loneliness in order to push through these agenda items of, uh, you know, radical transformation, really socialism. Yeah, and socialism is really just having a little core of people dictating to all of society how they should live. Uh, that's that's what what we see time and time again through all those utopian revolutions. But the the rules for radicals book was meant to guide radicals. I guess like Hillary Clinton was a big. Uh, uh, I guess she even met Saul Linsky, you know, uh, disciple of his. 
And, uh, you know, it's just about how do we take over the system? How do we, uh, you know, as radical leftists, turn this society into really collectivist one rather than one that values the individual? They don't put it that way, but that's that's what it amounts to. And, and he has guidelines, you know, like rule one, rule two, rule, and of course, rule 13, I think, was use their goodwill against them. Yeah. And I mean, I know I was recommended reading it a few years ago. I haven't done that already, but because, you know, it was a great example of how most of the rules have been followed by those in power. So for anyone, you know, curious to dive deeper, you know, can find a cop in the library and see what, what this book is about. Another thing, you know, highlight, you, you highlight in your book, and I really loved it, how utopianisms are characterized, but the belief that men are perfectible, right? And so is the negation of the fact that no, we're you know we're not going to be perfect in this world, and and mm-hmm. this is a red flag that we usually have with students. Like, is to, you know, not to trust anyone that says if you're going to change the system, human beings are going to be great, right? Like, in and and instead, you know, like you need to work one on one. You need to change the persons, and then maybe the world will change, right? Like, we need to we need to focus on on one one by one because there's no perfect condition for us to, to be again, to be, you know, without, without the fall, without, without limits. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I grew up knowing that a good way to learn this is to look at history. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is the reason why you bring up this historical precedence of tyrannical regimes. So you, you mentioned Cromwell, Robespierre, Lenin, Hitler. Like, is it, is this, is this why you think history is important? And is it sufficient? Well, whether or not it's sufficient is a different question. Important, absolutely critical, absolutely critical. And, and you know, that's why it's such a shame that history is not taught like it used to be. So these utopian revolutions that I discuss in the book are, I think, a way of showing the reader that there are very common patterns and and very common goals that are shared by tyrannical regimes all through history. And we see them even today in the globalist push with the World Economic Forum and all of that, uh, you know, pushing for censorship and all of that. The things that have changed are pretty much threefold. First of all, with the utopian revolutions of the past, you don't have the technological advances that you have today with the internet and uh, communications technologies, big tech and all of that. Second of all, they're not confined to a region like France or China or, you know, uh, North Korea or, you know, Germany They are, or Russia. They are uh, global. They have a reach that's global. And thirdly, it's not like there's a dictator like that's common that's running the whole show the way you saw a demagogue like Hitler or Lenin or Mao. What you have today is what I call like a hydra-headed beast. It's it's the corporate world along with political elites, along with big media and big tech and all these institutions. It's hydra-headed coming from like all these different directions. So those are the differences. However, the methods are pretty much the same. Involves coercion, involves, when you talk about perfectibility, 
it's it's not really perfectibility of man so much as trying to coerce man to fit into this mold. I mean, in the in the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik Russia, they talk about the new Soviet man whose loyalty would only be to the state. And there was a you know a deliberate, blatant war on family, uh, pitting family members against one another. So this is very common. You see this all through all of these kinds of things. Demonization campaigns, again, very common through all of all of these uh, utopian revolutions. In fact, I uh, talk about what I call the machinery of loneliness that is employed to try to create this social control that all utopians try to control human beings. And and uh, you know the three main components of that machinery I discuss at length in that part two of the weaponization of loneliness. And they are identity politics, which divides us and is intended to divide us into classes of oppressors and victims and label us. Political correctness, which is meant to induce us to self-censor so that we shut up about what we believe and even lie about what we believe in order to be accepted or or at least to avoid being ostracized. And thirdly, mob agitation. And it's the mob that enforces this self-censorship, that enforces this these divisions. And, you know, the irony, of course, is that the mob is in itself, you know, a creature of political correctness and identity politics. But but it's there to do the bidding of the elites, to do the to to push the agendas forward. And so those are the three main components. But you also have snitch culture, uh, the criminalization of comedy, for example, joke telling becomes like a crime, uh, especially if the regime is the butt of the jokes. And, uh, you know, demonization in particular, where people are induced to self-censor because they're fearful of a label or a slogan. And you can think probably of a hundred of them. I mean, you know, we don't want to be called a hater or a bigot or a conspiracy theorist or an election denier or you know, a fascist or a semi-fascist, as President Biden referred to half of America back in August. You know, nobody wants to be called names. So that is one very, very effective component in that machinery of loneliness So that machinery of, of inducing and triggering the conformity impulse through the fear yeah. of isolation. Yeah, creating this pariahs. And, and it's fascinating how you bring the straits together. You know, so one thing that I would challenge the audience, you know, those that disagree with us, if they're listening is, you know, if they really believe that they are for freedom is, okay, stop treating people as pariahs ever, right? Mm-hmm. And and accept them yes. for whatever they think, have a dialogue with them, have a serious dialogue with them at all times. Be true to the sentence, agree to disagree, Right. Which is often mm-hmm. sad, but very, very rarely practiced in in regimes and and in nowadays. If we see today's words as a regime, but I would, I mean, there is one sentence that at some point in your book, you know, because we are so used to our our life that you know, you made me remember, like the president of the United States was deplatformed, which, you know, one might agree or disagree with anything a politician says, but the possibility of taking the word away from the most, you know, 
the most powerful president of like the most important, you know, the most powerful country in the world. I still think that's the case. It just speaks of the power that there is mm. in creating or in trying at least to create this pariah, this this isolation, this demonization of, mm-hmm. of people. And one thing that I wanted to ask, you know, for those who might be thinking, oh no, I'm I'm way too smart and I'm way too honest. I'm not gonna fall for the conformity impulse. Uh, I found it fascinating um, that you mentioned some experiments. Um, oh. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to, you know, maybe mention one that might be interesting for, you know, maybe the youngest in, in the crowd that are yeah. fascinated by the way our brain works and our behaviors. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. The, yeah. I, uh, you know, the first part, I talked about the history of this phenomenon of uh, weaponization loneliness. And then, of course, I talk about the science and when we talk about the science, I referred, well, I'll just mention two experiments. First was Stan, uh, Solomon Ash, who in the 1950s was trying to study social conformity. A lot of it had to do with in the wake of World War II and, and trying to understand how so many people would go along with the Nazis or how so many people in Russia, you know, in, in, in communist Russia um, would go along with some of the, you know, totalitarian, really brutal pushes there. And so as a result of these tyrannical regimes, Salman Ash devised an experiment where I'm going to just explain it, you know, for your listeners, uh, if they're not familiar with it, it's really important. So he got about nine or 10 people in a room. Only one was a subject. All the rest were collaborators with the experiment. And he had them match up. The, the task was very simple. They were, they, you know, they were told that the, the, the point of it was uh, an exercise in visual judgment. So he has a line of a certain length on one card. And then on the other card, there's a choice of three lines of different lengths. The answer is pretty obvious which one matches the separate line. So for the first few trials, everybody gets the answer right. But then something starts to happen where all of the Confederates of the experiment, all the collaborators pick the wrong line. Now, mind you, this is nothing political about this answer, nothing controversial. It's just the length of a line. But by the time they get to the subject who's seated maybe second to last or something, he hears everybody giving the incorrect answer. And so he thinks, my goodness. So what happens? About almost 40% of the time, the subject goes along with the incorrect answer consistently. And 75% of the time, the subject goes along at least once. So there's, a, you know, it, it was just really fascinating. The experiment was replicated more than a thousand times. Same thing same results. So it's not just that he had to come up with the correct answer, but he had to do it publicly. And so one of the variations of the experiment should, you know, be a bright light to a lot of us. In one variation, Solomon Ash had one of the confederates of the experiment, one of the collaborators, give the correct answer while everybody else was giving a wrong answer. And the subject instead of nearly 40% of the time, conformed only 5%. So that shows you the power of partnering, the power of standing up for somebody who's right when nobody else will stand up for them. 
because the subject would look to that person who gave the correct answer as a partner. And it had a huge effect on what Ash called puncturing the illusion of unanimity, that this was just an illusion. And the correct answer was a correct answer. It didn't matter what everybody else said. So having a partner is extremely important, and we need to take that to heart. Later on, Ash had a student whose name was Stanley Milgram, and maybe a lot of your listeners are familiar with, with him. And he was the one who did those famous shock experiments uh, in the early 60s, where he uh, had actors pretending to be, well, he had, the, the subject had to give a shock for the wrong answer by the uh, you know, the person behind the screen. And uh, Milgram was trying to figure out was, are Americans susceptible to that kind of social pressure to hurt someone else or to, quote, just follow orders mm -hmm. as the Germans were in World War II during, under the Nazi regime? And sadly, he found that, yes, they are. You can read about it in his book, Obedience to Authority. And if your listeners are really interested in this, I recommend a movie. It's very interesting. That came out in 2015 called Experimenter, the Stanley Milgram story. And uh, they can get more information. But I think what these uh, experiments teach us is that, again, the weaponization of loneliness is very hardwired into us. We have that fear of being rejected if we give the wrong answer, you know, if we give the right answer or say what we believe. And then again, we also have this deep-seated kind of impulse to follow orders by authority figures, even if we know they hurt people. So yeah, Milgram found a, just a, an astounding number would go along with these shocks, you know, to the very end. And uh, I think it was something like uh, 40, 50%. I, I don't remember the exact numbers. It's in my book. But, yeah, it is uh, in your book. And I I mean, I, I don't know that I could ever end this conversation because everything you mentioned in your book is so great. But just about the things that you just mentioned, you brought up two points that you make extensively in the book and I encourage everyone to buy it and to read it. One thing is we we follow orders and ultimately there will be an authority. So that's something you make clear in your book that sort of like the consequence of that is just like just you know, be aware of who's your authority, but there is going to be one. We're not living in a world mm -hmm. where no one, no one is the authority. And then the other thing that you mentioned, you only need one person to speak for the subject to feel empowered. So if anyone has the courage or the circumstances or the freedom to speak, it's extremely important to do it because it's going to completely change things. And also you point out as every regime, that's the one thing they don't want, right? It only takes one dissenting voice to to bring down the uh, the castle, right? The, the That's right. That's the house right. of cards. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. And that's something that was brought up in uh, Václav Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless, is just that, you know, this is why regimes have the strong need to censor people, to shut them up is because even one voice can create a cascade, an opinion cascade, if, if others agree with that. The idea is to keep those, if you have those beliefs, to, to shut up about it, to keep them private so that they don't affect other people. That's the idea behind a censorship regime. 
Which is why, you know, which is that this, this epitomizes, the, we, we, we titled our show, What We Can't Not Talk About, right? So regardless of who's going to decide what we have to think about something, whatever it is, right? We're just going to talk about things and, and just talking and asking questions. Socrat, you know, it goes back to the Socratic method, right? You're just asking questions and then we'll see where we get. Like we have dialogues. And for those interested in like in the, how much dialogue has to do with relationship, you know, that can go into the Greek or the roots of the words and understand what that means. But that's another big whole discussion on the importance of dialogue. I encourage everyone to read your book to go deeper into the traits of those regimes. And, you know, they, they can provide a lot of insight on the world we live and how things don't really change that much. But one thing that even though I work with the, you know, we work here with a lot of university students, I was not aware of, honestly, and it pretty shocked me was your description of the privilege walks. Oh. Yeah. I don't know if everyone is familiar on our show with what no. they are. Well, I don't know. If you're near a campus, they you know may very well be. This was an idea to kind of create awareness. Uh, it started with, you know, white privilege. Now there's walks for, quote, family privilege. Yeah. Now think about what that, that means. I mean, yeah. that means that your peers, if you had, quote, some kind of privilege by growing up in an intact nuclear family, you are disadvantaging others. I mean, that's really where this whole idea is supposed to lead you if you didn't have those advantages. For example, with the walk, the exercise is that all the students line up and then they'll say, for example, if you're two bio, if you grew up in a household with two biological parents, take two steps forward. And if you didn't, take two steps backwards. And then they'll have things like if you went on a family vacation, take a step forward. If you didn't take, or if there were books in your house, where you, you know, all of these things. If you were, if you didn't have any debt to worry about, if you, you know, if you had two cars, you know, it goes on and on and on you know, to to pretty much vilify the uh, kind of middle class life of a family unit that, you know, is cohesive and, you know, with strong bonds. And, and, and so at the end of the walk, you'll have, if you cooperate with it, which I never would, but you would have students who are pretty much identified, everybody sees them, Oh, you grew up with all that privilege. And then you have students who are way back there who are, you know, basically being told, look at what they did to you. You know, I mean, that's really, it's meant to sow hostility. It's not meant to bring about friendship. They would say, oh, but just build awareness. Now, another way of doing that is saying that if you, if you get married and stay married and you have children and everything, boy, it's going to be so nice for them. But no, they don't they don't look at it that way. The, the way they the privileged walk elitists, uh, you know, race baiters in many cases uh, look at it is is to create hostilities and divisions and really destroy friendship. It has all kinds of really bad ramifications. Yeah. And the bad but, ramifications, yeah. you, you, you talk about them because you also talk, I found it extremely important that you also talk about our psychology, right? And how, for instance, you, you, you mentioned some of the 
the historical cases where it did happen that the person, you know, that was kidnapped or like told, you know, you are the source of the problem that ends up believing that story. So one of the problems is also that you don't only create division, you don't only create acidity, you start having people hating themselves, Mm -hmm. hating who they are, hating the fact that they Mm. did come from an intact family without recognizing that that's actually, you know, I come from a broken family and just like, please be happy about it because, you know, like you, you have, you would do me uh, a wrong to not acknowledge that this is something very beautiful that happened to you. Right. Mm -hmm. If if you're treating it as, um, as something that, that didn't need to be that way. I want to touch on, you know, again, inviting everyone to read you for a lot of insights. And, you know, I don't agree with exactly everything you say, but that's, that's exactly why we invite people on podcasts, right? Like that's why we talk. Mm -hmm. We don't, as we said before, we don't create friendships or relationships or interactions only with the people that we would do that would be exactly like us also because that would be ultimately extremely isolating. Mm -hmm. But you have a great constructive way to close your book. So this is not a pessimistic, you know, this is the end. Like you describe very vividly, like how bad things are. But at the same time, you do give a way out. And and you talk about the role of, you know, something that I'm a big fan of, reading groups. So do, do you want to talk maybe more about how you see like the the reaction, like how how you think we should move move forward? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I call that last chapter a wrench in the machinery of loneliness. And, and these are the different things that we can do to dismantle that very destructive machinery. One of them just has to do with awareness and building awareness. And yes, I did bring up the idea of book clubs. I actually piloted a book club on these themes in a suburb of Washington's a few years ago. And it was just really powerful experience for all of the uh, members. We traded stories about how identity politics and political correctness and propaganda worked on us, the mob and all of that. And, And it helped, it was very cathartic for a lot of the members to talk about their personal experiences. Maybe a child came home from college and disowned them because of the, you know, the environment or, you know, whatever the propaganda was. And so we read a lot of books and selections from books that dealt with propaganda and cults and, and, uh, you know, how these psychological manipulations, how this psychological warfare affects us. And so I think it's really important. I, I bring that idea up not only as a means of getting people more informed, you know, through these kinds of discussion groups, because I think it'd be great if they popped up on this theme. You know, of course, I'm talking about a book club or a discussion group on the theme of different themes like that fall under the umbrella of the weaponization of loneliness, like propaganda, political correctness, not mobs and all of that. And there's so much literature out there. Yeah, and you do mention uh, a lot of titles. I, I was oh, amazed because yeah. you you provide uh, a list um, of you, things to read. I, I do have a bibliography. The bibliography is not multimedia, but I do intend to put together a multimedia bibliography that would include movies that people can watch together and documentaries that deal with these themes that make us more aware of how easily we can become manipulated, how vulnerable we are, and how we might be able to push back. So the other purpose that these discussion groups could serve is to be what are called parallel policies, parallel 
institutions in a in a way where you have that because all the institutions are so corrupt, you know, it's not going to happen. This awareness is not going to happen through education. It's not, I mean, you know, through the institution as it exists now, right? Yeah. It's not going to happen through the media. You mean the by media. the Department of Education, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not going to happen through the media. It's not going to happen. You know, it's going to happen, you know, through people getting together one-on-one. And my favorite quote for that is from Jacques Yalel's book, Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitude. He has a very pithy sentence in there. Propaganda ends where simple dialogue begins. And just as you say, one-on-one conversations, developing relationships. No, obviously, you're not going to agree on everything. You don't agree with me on everything. I may not agree with you. I don't know what you're, you know. But the point is, friendship, you know, it's very strongly tied to freedom. All relationships that are personal, that are open in terms of conversation, are tied to freedom. That's why censorship, political censorship, is such an enemy of freedom. And, and so that's why I believe that that's one way out of it. And there are, there are a lot of little ways that people can, you know, speak up. I mean, you can talk about, like, maybe a, a really awful piece of artwork. Like, there was one that just uh, went up in Boston the other day, right? on Martin Luther King. I mean, it's totally faceless. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. at the Boston Commons. Oh, there, there's this huge sculpture that was unveiled for the Martin Luther King Memorial uh, in Boston. And it's supposed to be two arms hugging each other, but it looks almost obscene. There's no human face. It's... Um, your listeners, many of them may be may, may probably, with it, yeah. And but, you do mention but, bring beauty back, right? As a right, way, exactly. Of. You know, and, and if you see something that you don't like, just say something like, "Oh, you know, that rubs me the wrong way." I mean, it, it doesn't have to be a big, long, you know, Ask polemic. Me. Yeah, but but then somebody else might say, "Yeah, I know, I don't." You know, I don't like that either. You know, it, it's a matter of speaking up about, you know, not just things like, you know, beauty uh, but, and, and standing up for a friend or standing up just for anybody who's being viciously attacked by uh, a mob, you know, like uh, in a town hall meeting or whatever, you know, just standing up for somebody who is unnecessarily being attacked uh, verbally, demonized. Or this, ignored, this is really right? Important. Or ignored, because there's nothing like, as you say, we are afraid of loneliness. Stand up for those that are being, you know, the cancel culture. Sometimes we, we, I think we equate it with like being attacked, but it, you're canceled where no one talks to you anymore, right? Like mm-hmm. eyes isolated and and left. Well, that's the idea. Yeah. That's the idea is to put somebody in a state of isolation and thus have them serve as an example for the bystander who will have nothing to do with that person because they're fearful of the same fate. You saw this during the struggle sessions in Mao's Cultural Revolution, where the Red Guards would just mob people, beat them up, and accuse them of being enemies of the people. And if you couldn't be a bystander, if you didn't participate in the beatings, uh, you were considered an enemy yourself. We don't want it to get to that point. But that's the logical endpoint if we just keep shutting up. So stand up for you know victims of mobbing, and uh, you know stand up for beauties. Make a point if something you think 
in the public space is truly dehumanizing. Say so. And, uh, you know, these are just little things that people can be doing. I have a long, I have a longer list. of Yeah, you do. And and one thing I really like is that you say, you know, live as if you were free. And I think that's also something you got from. uh, Yeah, yeah. that was uh, the Polish uh, expression during the Soviet, during communist era. You live as if you were free. And of course, you'll have a considering, I mean, Poland made it through, right? So we could say that that that, you know, lessons from Poland should be lessons that we take to heart. Again, I invite everyone to get your book, to read it. Thank you. To speak up, to revive beauty, to go to comedy show, you know, not, don't cancel comedians. Oh, yes. And also, like, I wanted to close with this. Like, I saw that you dedicated this book to your parents. And yes. So, you know, we're an incident for the family. I know you have kids. You said you homeschooled, care about the family. What would they think um, about this book? Oh, my parents. Mm. Oh, I think I think I think they'd be very proud. My mother would be very proud, even though she her politics throughout her life were were very leftist. And uh, so, you know, it's just kind of I'm kind of curious what what she would think, although I she did teach me all of the, you know, the basics about, you know, being a good person. You know, I think that I dedicated the books to my parents because, first of all, they were the one. This is my first book, and they brought me into this world. But they also did instill in me the spirit of inquiring about all of these phenomena, about you know why people act the way they do, and so on and so forth. But yeah, it gave me a lot of you know. I was very gratified that I was able to do that and dedicate it to them. Well, Stella, I want to. I'm gratified and I'm grateful for your time with us. Thank you for having written this book, and you know, you. I hope you you're gonna write more. We're gonna keep reading your essays as well. And thank you, you know, thank you for being on our show. If you ever pass by Austin, you know, you know that you can stop at Stamberg Hall and meet some of our students. Some of our people would be delighted to to meet you in person. And thanks to Thank everyone who listened. And as usual, if you enjoyed this episode and saw the show, so recommend it to your friends, share it. Again, get the book. Thank you again, Stella. Oh, thank you very much, Mariana. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.